Brick Moon Fiction presents Errors of Lunatics by Brian Aiello, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. Interplanetary transportation is probably a dream of the very distant future, but with the moon only a quarter of a million miles away. General Jimmy Doolittle, USA, U.S. Air Force, retired. God pity the one dream man. History. The financial fairy godfather of space exploration straps himself to eight rockets pointed down, poised on the brink of a lifelong fantasy. He has reached the moment which beyond the point of no return has been breached. Today, he goes to the moon. Phoebe, the great goddess of the night sky, fills the end of the long tunnel. The tracks slope up and he will ride them to her. The moon, turner of tides and heads and viewer of all human frailty in the dark of night, is his first and only destination, because beyond might as well be oblivion. A single button separates his past obsession with a new future, and he is finding it difficult to not reflect. The beautiful part for the 127-year-old with his perfect memory, it's like reliving every moment. Exactly three years, eleven months, and two days after the motherless boy, named Gunther by his father, got birthed dead in the German town of Husum on the North Sea, he, very much alive, nervously bites his nails. His plan might just work out after all. The angles he has worked all week are lining up. His goal, to witness Robert Goddard launch humanity's first deliberate space-bound rocket. The engineer promised to fling it from a contraption he built for that exact purpose, and Gunther knows it'll go beyond the atmosphere for no other reason than he wants it to. His faith has nothing to do with fact, just faith that Goddard, a farm boy like he, forced from dreams by the constant drone of work, 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 can still do science, or fantasy as his papa calls it. Gunther's eyes are open to the possibility of life in the sciences. He wants to make things, and whatever that means, he'll figure out. From memory, he rereads the write-up found in a discarded newspaper about the launch. The gist, Goddard, in front of a crowd of Auburn, Massachusetts residents, will make the future a reality and give humanity space travel. Far below his perch in the barn's rafters, Gunther's daddy, Dolph, learns about the historic flight from the town's only baker. Down where Mrs. Kind keeps her mill, he picks up the next morning's flour primed with Gunther-provided information. Neighbor is going to try and fly a rocket today. Rocket? The word has no meaning to Dolph, and Gunther understands why. If not for the break from August 1914 to November 1918, when he was forced to kill enemies of the German Empire during the Great War, he would know little else but farming. Still, Gunther has used the word rocket around him almost endlessly for weeks with the hope it would make a difference. The baker shrugs beefy shoulders, not knowing either, and turns a loaded wheelbarrow towards the exit. As he nears the barn's door, Gunther is sure he failed, until at the last moment the baker turns and adds, It's free. Bring your boy. The former German conscript nods and does as Gunther hopes decides with nothing better to do after a day of grinding and packaging wheat and with a son in need of entertainment, to go and find out what all the fuss is about. From above, with the heel from last night's rye bread in one chubby fist, Gunther watches the exchange, relieved. Then a sudden smile breaks through the crust of barn dust coating his face. He places the book about Newton he was reading before the baker arrived on a stack of other much-loved tomes he has reclaimed from attempts to discard them. Certain his father will call him to come soon, and together they will witness history. Maybe it was an accident or simply kismet, but he knew Robert Goddard's name from an article called Navigating Space, 
published in an almost 30-year-old issue of Popular Science. That he lived next door, and Gunther found it exploring a random pile of papers, has to be a cosmic influence. Has to be. Already with a keen interest in space, he dragged the whole stack of spring cleaning back to his cubby up in the rafters of the barn. From this perch, he can observe the whole of Mrs. Kine's land in an almost 360-degree arc through the cracks in the barn planking, and below he can observe his father working the mill. The magazine in question lies under the Newton book, dated 1901, two years before Kitty Hawk. The aerospace engineer-to-be wrote, The method generally advanced is causing the recoil of a gun placed in a vertical position with the muzzle directed downwards to raise itself together with a car containing the operator. Gunter pictures a firework rocket attached to an old Ford with he himself sitting behind the wheel. He can feel the huge engines lifting him from the ground, shooting him to the moon. He stops a moment on the ladder down to the ground to fantasize about going, seeing it, tasting the lunar air. One thing he is certain of, it is not made of cheese like Dolph claims, and through a missing chunk of the barn's roof, he finds himself studying her there in the mid-afternoon sky, in all her white glowing glory, haunting with her distance, mystery, and beauty, Gunther's, Earth's, personal lunar goddess. Papa, where's my mama? Time ticks slowly by as Dolph, stoic Massachusetts farmer, uses every muscle in his body to keep tears from exploding out of his eyes. And when he has composed himself efficiently, but unable to say the words he knew he had to say, he points to the sky out of desperation and says, Dynamuturist Phoebe, she is there watching you be good for your papa, yeah? When Gunther looked and stopped asking questions, maybe Dolph felt some relief. Okay with a lie if it made the boy happy. Gunther knows now the moon is not his mother. Maybe he knew then also. Yet the fantasy, or the feeling he gets when gazing on her face, persists. Perhaps because she has been there his whole life, finding the sun and reflecting its light so Gunther would know comfort. And perhaps because of the work Goddard does today, that light, reachable. What will they find there? People? Magic? No, likely what will be discovered on the moon will be neither of those things nor an answer as to why his mother had to die giving birth to him. The write-up he used to navigate the day's events was torturously short on details about the rocket designed by the engineer and child prodigy. Gunther can't help but wonder what genius looks like in person. Excited to get going, Gunther watches his father begin the process of cleaning his tools, then puts them back where they go. It's an exacting ritual Gunther watches him undergo each and every evening before he can decide to be done for the day. Eventually, though, he hollers upstairs to the apartment he shares with his boy. Gunther, come now! And stomps out to the old farmer's dilapidated Studebaker he has permission to use when needed, to wait for the child's arrival. Gunther waves, already in the back seat when he arrives, and soon enough, they chug south. Once on the Goddard farm... They finish the trip down a pothole road and join a few dozen other curious people parked in a fallow cornfield. Dolph puts the old Ford next to a buck wagon strapped to an old field horse, still frothing at the mouth from the effort of dragging its burden out to the event. Gunther likes the idea of the horse and buggy being used to bring the rocket out to the field, a touch of antiquity influencing the future. Dolph parks and climbs out to open the back door for Gunther, and when the toddler slides from the rear seat onto the makeshift parking lot, he can sense a tingle in the air. It's like the bubbles in overstarched water reaching up to climb over a pot and into the fire below. 
is the feeling of barely contained catastrophe. Even from a memory that at its apex exists over a century later, Gunter can recall every detail of this life-defining day, its march and cold with a foot of old snow on the ground. He remembers garbage being burnt somewhere, leaving a black smudge on the skyline, and the stench of burnt peanut butter on the air. It makes him hungry and sick at the same time. No matter how often he plays back this memory, it's the occasional bleat of a goat and moo of milking cow that punctuates the crowd's murmuring excitement. They breathe steam into the cold air as they follow those that arrived a bit earlier. The boy steps in the holes left behind in the snow by his father's giant feet, whispering German curses against the cold. Gunther is always proud of his fearlessness displayed. He credits being in the trenches of the Great War. He follows his father, forcing his way through the crowd to find their path that leads them to a wooden fence. The fence acts as a natural barricade, keeping people away from the launch zone. There is a nice-sized crowd already, and Gunther wonders if any of the men present faced his father in combat. He doubts it. The details won't become clear for a few years yet for the boy, but he knows his father served in Belgium, and America entered late and bullied peace out of the Germans and their allies with the idea of almost limitless reserves. Every American he ever heard talk about the war only mentioned serving in France, which made him think his dad ever seeing one of them in combat quite impossible. But he also at this point in life accepts he doesn't quite understand what this thing called the war is, the thing his father talks about every day and dreams about every night, kicking and screaming for his mommy to come save him. Almost every night Dolph dreams, waking Gunther, who prays someone comes and makes everything better, someone soft and warm, even old weathered Mrs. Kind, anyone the toddler could know as mother. One morning his dad talked about the dreams. He said, In them I am asked to dig holes. Every day more digging in the Belgium dirt turned mud by a constant river of raging blood. Then I am told to kill an invisible enemy that I know wants nothing more than to catch me in the direction I am not facing. I am always digging and knowing any second a bullet, a knife, comes for my back. This sounds prosaic and normal to Gunther. His father threatens to kill people out of frustration all the time, and he knows no one can beat his daddy in a fight. Even if they did sneak up on him and shoot him and stab him, Dolph will live forever. Gunther does not know why his father was forced to fight in an archduke's army in the first place. He doesn't understand the concepts of war and death other than as words he has taught himself to read. When they get to the fence, Gunther's daddy shakes hands with the butcher, another German expat. They smile happy and chit-chat in their mother tongue about their new home famous for pilgrims and baseball, while avoiding any talk about their homeland. They lean into each other's Germanness with hearty grins. Bored, Gunther finds studying the excited man in round glasses checking cables and seals far more interesting. Doctor, hold for a photo, asks a middle-aged woman in a fur coat. And the middle-aged man who looks too young to be a doctor does, offering a sweeping gesture that ushers Gunther's eye to his sheet-covered invention. Gunther feels his excitement building even as a sudden gust of wind takes the hat from Goddard's head, revealing him to be quite bald. The wind takes the hat high into the sky as Gunther adjusts its shape with his imagination, finding ways so that the wind takes it and prevents it from inevitably falling back to earth in a few hundred feet. Despite his best efforts, reality takes over and the hat falls, and Goddard laughs without worry for his article of clothing. Instead of fetching the hat, Goddard rips the fluttering sheet off the contraption in front of him, revealing, The Dell! 
Goddard yells, excited, as if giving something marvelous to those gathered. The Dell looks like the Greek letter Phi, a circle of metal nested in a wishbone-type machine that can be loosened and aimed before tightening again. Gunter guesses the gleaming steel missile inside the oval launch platform with flared wings and steam leaking from its eight conal exhaust points is aimed at a sixty-degree angle and away from the Auburn town center. The steam is fuel vapor, Goddard says, answering a question thrown to him from the crowd. Gunter loves the name of the rocket, and the idea of going to space makes his brain feel itchy with fantasy. He needs to go, and he will, he promises himself, maybe even all the way to the moon. He is not the only one captivated by the moment. Oh, it's magical, a woman says near. He is the world's next Newton, a tiny-voiced man exclaims. Going on the dollar bill, that one is. Most are whispering about space, going to the moon, the greatness of the moment, until one man with a red face and an eye-watering stink yells out, The damn fool is going to puncture the sky! Kill us all! The crowd shushes him quiet as a hush settles over everything as Goddard tinkers with cables running away from the launch site. He eventually reaches the control panel, twiddling and flipping things in preparation for the final moment. Gunter wishes things would hurry up. If the atmosphere is going to pop, he wants to see it. But because science takes time, he is forced to find other ways to occupy his mind. With a chubby toddler finger, he counts the crowd by dividing the area in which they all stand so he can estimate how many people stand in each area. He adds the numbers together, and the answer easily comes to him. He attempts to interrupt his father's conversation. Papa, there are three hundred people here. The old man from over a century later feels injured again by the look of dismissal on his father's face. Dolph looks down at his son, his face showing he thinks there is no correct answer a four-year-old boy could make. But after a moment he tries to smile, a worried glint in his eye like maybe there was something wrong with Gunther, and Gunther begins to wonder the same thing. Just the shadow of a doubt that'll be there the rest of his life. Honestly, what kind of four-year-old can count to three hundred, let alone guess with any accuracy the size of a crowd? Yet Dolph has to know he is right. He has doubted him before and been proved wrong. Rarely is Gunther wrong when it comes to numbers. It has never been a question of can, but more just is. He can count and read, and the frustrating thing for him is being housed with a man who can do neither outside his very specific craft of farming grain and making it flower. Oh, he pretends with his old-world Bible in the apartment, away from the house and Mrs. Kind, tucked away in the barn loft with no other books overlooking a horse paddock and the southern fields. His office, he calls. But most days he treats it as one would a home. Gunter realizes with a start he can see the Goddard farmhouse from his own little hideaway in the barn just visible on the far northern horizon, which to him means they are only a few scant miles away from the field his father works during the day. The crowd continues to grow from three hundred into what seems to be the whole of Auburn, Massachusetts. Gunter eyes the baker, the same who suggested they come, walking through the crowd with an open box of cookies. He offers them at three cents for two or three for four. He is doing a banner business handing out cookies left and right and shoving change into an already jingling pocket. Gunter wants one, but knows his father won't allow it. Money is to be saved, not spent. He has heard him say so often. Before he can try and beg three cents from his father, Goddard tells the gathered crowd, Prepare yourself for history! He pauses, looks directly at Gunter, and warns, Just keep your eyes open in case it goes sideways. 
Some rockets go sideways. It's built into the math. Then twists a valve, and without a countdown or even a single moment to prepare the crowd for what to expect, the ten-foot missile shoots up into the sky at the top of a thick white line of smoke and rumbling roar. The rocket twists and streaks through the sky, vibrating the air and simply working gravity like a ladder, until it disappears at the apex of its white ropey smoke, already dissipating near its launch origin. Gunter watches the missile go as high up as he can before it becomes lost in the sun, disappointed. He can watch it over and over again in his memory, but it's not the same as the moment that's fast slipping into the past. The crowd claps and cheers, but Gunter needs to know, so he asks his father, Can we go find it? But the laborer is still chatting with the butcher and missed the launch completely. Find what? he asks, hardly pausing his conversation to answer the boy's question. Ten years later, he is after Goddard's rocket number 25. Dead leaves turn to dirt, flavor the chill, wet air. It's a gray, sloshy fall morning, and Gunther walks alone through the woods and a low-hanging mist until he stands at the mouth of a hole in the ground three feet in diameter, lined with rocks and moss and a foreboding dark air. A low growl disturbs the peace again, reminding him life is always getting in the way of his wants. He wants a rocket so he can study it, make it his own, and go to space and he knows he can. He has read every book on space travel he can find, from Burroughs' racist Martian civilization to Lovecraft and his fancy words and his space gods. But though fiction was plentiful, facts about the universe were not. And this is what he wants to know. What's up there? Yet with each passing year, his want eludes him, and the years only pass because that's what's expected of them, to pass and be done so new things can be discovered. Yet new things are dared to come by, because there is no joy like watching a rocket thunder into the atmosphere over the town of Auburn. Goddard sends them streaking through the clouds with better design and better intention, but stopped making the launches public. This did little to curb Gunther's interest. When they fall to the ground, Gunther seeks them out, yet to find one. It's his mission to find at least one before he can move on to a new obsession, if any such thing exists. Could he walk up to Goddard's door and ask to see, or help, or be near the man? Maybe. But too painfully aware he sounds different than other kids. Just a bit too German. He never does. Gunther turns toward the growling, knowing what to expect, and eyes the old Labrador because it follows him and he hates it, but appreciates the companionship all at the same time. Will you come to the cave with me, Wally? He asks the dog, who happily wags its tongue and its tail in response to the query. He should have no intention of going down into this cave system, he remembers the map he dug up from the library archives. It is incomplete, but suggested the system goes throughout the entire region. His sense of self-preservation, though, is no match for good, healthy curiosity. His math always points him near here, and it is time to find out why. He suspects Goddard might be hiring men to meet the rocket as it comes crashing down. But his investigation, looking into who might be the hired muscle to do so in town, yielded nothing either. Everything except the launches is conducted in secrecy. Even the findings from the launches are missing when Goddard published his research, which Gunther has the local librarian track down, which is easy because of Goddard's status as an Auburn celebrity. He read the papers like they were ambrosia from the gods themselves, but the numbers were never complete, like they were gold Goddard was saving for himself. He wants those numbers. Fuel costs. Specifics involving the way the metals are made into alloys things that would enable him to build one if he had the resources. 
He takes off his backpack and removes the little black leather-bound journal and rereads the chicken-scratch math he used to plot the rocket's landing zone. All he has to go on is an estimated idea of its speed and angle. But it should be in this field six miles southeast of Mrs. Kine's farm. His quest for a rocket has taken him through every field for miles around. And on each expedition, he leaves behind a father who worries, but knows there is no stopping the boy and there never will be, and in fact has made Gunter promise, yes, father, no ropes. And as he spikes the ground and unraggles a length of thirty-foot hemp rope and slides its free end into the inky blackness of the cave, he feels a little bad for breaking the promise, but again decides there is little he can do about it, because it actually feels like the future pushing him forward. When he thinks about space travel, it's like anything is possible, and imagines this future as unavoidable. How does one avoid something unavoidable? One doesn't. The future is a rampaging monster barreling toward him, and he looks forward to each new moment. And through the process of meeting the future, he has learned that knowing a rocket's original location and the formula for gravity, which is constant and means that when things go up, they must come down again. So he started drawing a map of Auburn, showing the possible places that a landing could be, all of them near a farm field and a cave. Throwing caution away, he leans in over the edge and braces his weight against the rope, feeling the nothing behind as he tries to climb down, a thing he thought he'd be good at. Instead of allowing him the option, physics makes a large section of the cave collapse, including the portion spiked and expected to support a ten-year-old child. He falls into blackness. When Gunther comes to, his head hurts and he tastes dirt. Moving to stand sends fire up his left arm, which he diagnoses as a bad sign, but pushes through the agony to reach his feet. He manages himself upright, but on bruised legs he sways, deciding he must have hit his head. In his pocket, he takes a match and the slow-burning wick he planned to use as a light. He's excited to use the wick he read about in a book on spelunking. Now the matches flare and the wick sparks to life, throwing a yellow glow out in front of it. He sees cave ends at the cusp of his wick in a wall of nothing, and above, under a star-strewn sky haunted by a tiny silver disk, is the torture of waiting hoping for rescue. Noticing the night sky seems to make the temperature drop, and steam leaves his mouth as if reality just remembered the circumstances surrounding his unfortunate situation. To make things worse, he thinks he hears something coming from further in the cave, the whine of a distressed dog. Damn Wally, he whispers, moving off in that direction, cradling his arm and wincing with every step. After a few hundred feet, he wishes he had stayed put, but is dedicated to finding Wally before finding himself help. He stops and places his belt across his chest as a sling and feeds his arm into it, hoping to keep it from moving so much. But starting out again, even that does little against each jostling blow of his feet hitting the earth. Yet he inches along. The whining gets louder, as does the fuzz in his head. He staggers, knees like jelly, seeking the wall of the cave occasionally as he progresses. Turning his head away from the wick's glow leads him to look straight into darkness, and the idea that his own skeleton might one day be discovered down here centuries from now slithers its way into his head. Facing the direction he thinks of as forward, he follows the sounds of whining around a turn and spots the glow of light ahead. His heart sputters happy, and if he could have run, he would have then toward the glow. Soon enough he is there to realize the light does not equal freedom yet. He finds himself in a white-tiled room, filled with tools and machinery. 
In the very center is a version of the launching contraption invented by Goddard, the only difference being this one was 80 times larger. In its center, a sleek rocket, different than all the others and not just in size. This one has windows and a sleek design as if it was being made to actually fly and not just be shoved through the atmosphere. Far above, he can see the wooden slats of a barn floor and he easily imagines the rocket ripping through it on its way to the moon or elsewhere. It sits on inert technology and over a scaffolding built to allow access to an open hatchway. Beyond that portal, freedom from Earth. Hoses and steam and the smell of fuel being mixed and gelled dominate the air. All of it makes him hunger to explore, climb up and into it, discover how it works. He imagines it taking off and allowing him to see the surface of the moon. If not for the agony of his injuries, he might have tried to work it. And that would be it. The end. Gunter knows this is Goddard's lab, but more than that, it is an engineering heaven. He is also obviously where the wine is coming from, yet it appears to be a machine and not from an injured dog. Meaning Wally is not here. Here. Wherever that may be. He takes a step into the light, forgetting for a moment his injuries, and yelps with a sudden jolt of pain and feels himself beginning to lose consciousness just as voices echo out of an unseen room. He recognizes Goddard's voice as he says, I counsel we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists, sure, says a man back to him. He sounds annoyed, like any one of the men Gunther has explained something simple to and won't listen. One hand washes the other, doctor, he continues. Sometimes good is propelled by the not-so-good. The voice is a fist that promises violence. There is menace in it. Power. The man does not yell, yet the promise of capability exists, like a cop holding a gun on an unarmed assailant, sure of himself and what he wants. You mean evil, Major Doolittle, Goddard fires back, because that's what the Third Reich has promised the world, evil. There is nothing about the master race that's good or even sits comfortable against my work. We promise the world no more war. I will not work with that German monstrous henchman, no matter how devoted to the science of rocketry you say he is. Yet you will make good on your promise. We funded you, and now the future comes, with or without you, and sadly, it's not completely up to you whether you get to enjoy the fruits of your labors, or watch as others do. The world needs help preventing mass destruction. People like you have broken physics, made things possible only God knew about. Now we must have the world's strongest, most technologically superior army to control. We will control the earth, the sky, and now space. And you will continue to help us do just that. Or serve time in Leavenworth for refusing. The choice, or lack thereof, is yours. You must know he is a madman. Gunter is delirious with pain, and maybe he fleshes out the moment more from memory than reality, but knows the madman he speaks of is the vice-chancellor of Germany, hell-bent on ruling a homogenous world. He thinks specifically about the pictures in Life magazine showing the fashionable Workers' Party leaders screaming for more state protection after a fire. We are all madmen under the right lighting, Dr. Goddard, comes a third voice clipped with the over-eyeing of a Prussian accent. Von Braun, if I had known, Goddard begins, Yes, if you had known, doctor, then your sensibilities would still be hidden. We all do things for the better good. Sometimes it's for a longing you don't quite understand. For me, 
It is her. Gunther imagines the moon and von Braun's finger meeting, because that's his why also, the compelling mystery of a lost continent. After a silence, Doolittle punches into the conversation again with, If they abuse the privilege of working with us to take humanity to the stars, we will send the hundred and first after them and crush their puny country and their novel approach to space. I promise you that. You believe me, right? The sound of shuffling feet conjures the image of one man cowering from another as Gunther fights against an encroaching unconsciousness. The lure of black is too great, and eventually, the words become muddled and disappear entirely from the distant memory. Does history recognize the importance of this moment? That the tangles of advanced rocketry began in Auburn, Massachusetts, until the U.S. hijacked it and birthed the infamous V-2 rocket for a would-be enemy. Becoming aware again, Gunter does not know if any of it even happened. He can play back the words he heard over and over, but he can do the same for any dream. He plays with the words, trying to make them work with what he understands about the world, and thinks they suggest rocketry could force the world to heal. He wakes in a hospital bed, covered in stiff but clean-smelling sheets. To his left, a stack of brand-new books on the night table, his arm in a thick white cast and Dolph sitting by his side, eyes red with secret tears. "'I thought you were dead,' he says, a little anger leaking out. Gunther thinks about the old man losing him. He never talks about losing his wife. There is only the one photo taken on their wedding night. In it she is dour while Dolph gleams with pride and happiness. Gunther knows the worry must have been agony.' What happened? he asks. You were brought in by a farmer. Said Wally's whining led him to you, found you under a fallen branch. Which farmer? Fussy man in little round glasses. Goddard. A debate blossoms in Gunther's mind. Does he argue with those facts? Does he tell his father the whole tale? Neither question matters because he's ten, with an obvious concussion, and national socialismus are not in Auburn, Massachusetts, silly boy. Nazis were home, in Germany, and Germany dies from the self-administered poison it gave itself trying to conquer Europe. The world does not care about Germany, so relax, sleep, and when you wake you will feel better, I promise, Dolph says. Life was different for Gunther after his recovery, as Dolph demands, Your life will be work, not fantasy. All thoughts of space stop now. His father made him a slave to the farm he himself was indentured on by marriage contract. Guilt maybe allowed it, but because of it, he learned how to grow wheat, how to mill and how to sell it to those that could make magic with it. He became important to the economy of the farm, innovating, making life easier for his ever-aging father. He found it rewarding. And though Dolph thought he denied his son his passions, Phoebe was always there for him to fantasize about, her white face gleaming with so much invitation. At sunset he had Mars, on cold mornings there was Venus, and up there at night were so many countless names and places. He could never imagine them all, among them Jupiter and Saturn. Maybe one day he'll buy a telescope and see them, get married, show his wife and kids. And with that engineering, farm life became just fine. He had his books after all, and felt sufficiently distracted and most importantly to his dad, confined. Yet the fantasy of going beyond Earth is so empowering it never enters his mind he was actually doing work for himself now. Even as a teenager, he imagines himself on the lunar surface every day, scratching out a living to survive. 
every farm problem is a problem of man's first colonial attempt beyond the atmosphere. It helps shape the work they do. Oh, the old man fought against Gunther's ideas with his more traditional methods, but when they began to see huge gains in the business, he relented. Worn down with solutions that allowed him to take more and more steps back from the everyday workings of the farm until it was almost running autonomously. Then at forty, Dolph looked seventy, and Gunther was sure he didn't have much time left and knew that sooner than he would like, his father was going to leave him. Then what? And as Dolph's war took the life out of him even with decades' worth of cushion between it and him, Gunther's war got dealt out by fate. Freedom from the farm came at seventeen, when the Japanese dropped bombs on a little out-of-the-way airfield in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Many deaths and much destruction were reported on the island called Oahu. Soon after, he got a draft card in the mail. It said, come or go to prison. So he went as assigned and stood in front of a board of military officers. At seventeen, Gunther had already read every book in the Auburn Library. He had written reams of journals detailing his thoughts and ideas for colonizing the moon and beyond on the engineering of flight, of growing wheat, and baking bread. Yet he failed the first question. Where are you from, boy? He answered truthfully, and things got worse. Education? Self? Thoughts on war? It's bad. And as he was questioned by the government as to how he could best serve her in war, his every answer preventing him from finding something other than the uniform of a United States Marine to wear and a front-facing line to crouch behind. Yet Gunther saw this as an exchange. He'd happily kill Japanese for the promise he wouldn't have to kill any of his German kin. Sadly, by the end of things, he finds he'd preferred not to have killed any humans at all. And that's what being a Marine was, seeing desire matter for squat, and how small he was in a vast big world that sought to devour him. It was this he found disturbing, how little his life mattered to the world at large compared to how much his life mattered to him. The difference is staggering. Fortunately for the boot, he won't dwell on much of that until later in his life. Before the events of Pearl Harbor, he had never heard of Hawaii, but got to see it as one of the many stops on his island-hopping murder tour of the Pacific. He engaged the enemy eighty times over the four years he served. The war is mainly a blur of long periods of discomfort punctuated by the worst violence a human being can render onto other human beings. As a Marine, he kills because when he pulls the trigger on his rifle as trained, bullets come from the end in a deadly fashion and do what's meant of them to do. When his fists fall, he places them not to just damage, but to end another person's existence, as it was screamed into him to do. With knife or bayonet, he does not stop when flesh yields, but when there is nothing left to do except find another body in which to put the blade. In the more peaceful moments, he shits water, eats little to avoid it, and thinks of what life could be out of the war. He thinks of his father waiting for him to work land that is not his. Sometimes, when waiting to be told which bullet to stand in front of, he sketches out ideas in the sand. He scratches numbers and words onto the dozens of different islands he visits, and only in the sand, so the sea can wash them away. Just sit and watch them because he is surrounded by death and his will surely come soon. And if he just so happens to survive, he can flip through those rambling entries at will later from memory, and lay them out and plan his future, a future where he hopes there is peace enough for at least one old man. He knows peace will never come for him. For the rest of his life, his first murder flashes through his head. It happens intrusively over and over again through the years. 
an impossibly young face runs at him out of the dark, the rattle of machine gun fire all around, the sticking mud under his boots, the hot metal from his weapon searing his hand each time he reloads. He knows there's a possibility he killed before the boy. He threw tons of lead out into the dark, protecting the line as ordered. Yet the boy is memorable because he felt the fight give way in him when he took his life. In his mind, he can watch the Japanese soldier's violence ebb to nothing with the M1 pressed up under his emaciated face. He can see this perfectly, time and time again. Was it a boy? He can ask himself in his memory, but it doesn't matter because they were all boys. He was only 21 when it was all done. For Christ's sake, when they saved the world from itself. He sees the face of his victim, smooth, young, screaming in rage and intent, coming at him at the perfect moment just as Gunther's weapon needed more bullets. He swings his rifle. The butt connects with the youth's skull with a jolt like lightning. The boy falls and Gunther makes no decision, yet finds himself straddling him and working with every muscle in his body to end the kid's life. Unlike all the others to come through, those murders he can easily excuse. This one he questions over and over because of how feral it was and how desperate to end this person he became. He hated him at that moment, but in memory wishes over and over again he hadn't done what he did. After turning the man's skull into jelly with the butt of his rifle, he stands, finishes loading his M1, aims, and empties it again into the recent casualty, until someone tackles him and asks him, Why? To make sure he becomes the worst monster he can before the war is over. Maybe even in an attempt to completely destroy any innocence he has left in himself. Those might as well be the words he used in retort. He remembers desecrating the corpse easily. The first bullet tears a chunk out of the chest. He would have died instantly from that one shot, if not already dead. Gunter knows what happens next, the same thing that happens every time he is called on to engage the enemy. He will fight until the battle's done, yet wonder afterwards why he did that to the boy. Was it so bad? Yes, he decides over and over and over. The question persists, though, because he knows he is not good any longer. He is a machine made for evil. So he occupies his mind with thoughts on growing cereals and what bread is and how to bake it all to avoid thinking about this child warrior every single spare moment, even when aboard a ship being told he is on his way home after someone decided the war was over, five days after Robert Goddard died from throat cancer, and six days after the second nuclear bomb broke the earth. When the man Gunther comes home, his father says, I thought you were dead. And Gunther answers, Not yet, before spending every penny he saved during the war purchasing land around the property owned by Mrs. Kind. When she dies, he buys what she leaves his dad to consolidate, he told him then. The Goddard place came next, follows since before the war. It came cheaper than he would have thought with so much history attached. He built up all the other properties, the Goddard one he left alone for nature to reclaim, only making sure the barn was sealed before transforming the area around it into a sea of plenty. He grows wheat and oats and plenty of them, cranberries also. He builds apiaries. He builds supply lines. He hires workers and managers and people to handle them all. He builds and builds, trying to work himself to death because if he doesn't, the knowledge of what he did to the boy swims up from the dark recess of his mind to drown him in regret and sadness. He calls his product Nature's Kind, and five years after the war, he is selling to more than a dozen grocery stores, then hundreds, 
Then they called him. The orders are staggering. He hires workers and managers and soon finds himself delegating to delegators. Commercials with his face decorating his product grown on his farm are shown every night on TV. As a byproduct of his efforts, he becomes wealthy enough to maybe even buy the moon if he were so inclined. But he hasn't remembered space yet. It's not until 24 years later when he realizes he worked through his father's funeral. He hits a wall on his efforts, hard. His dad is dead. The reason for it all, and now he is alone. He lowers his head and drops the pencil onto his newest journal, touches briefly at the pliers he was manhandling some chicken wire with, hoping to improve his shifter technology, and decides he has had enough bread for a lifetime, and heads out of the barn and into the warm May sunlight. He is surrounded by a sea of winter wheat swaying brown in a slight breeze, ready to be harvested and made into one of the dozens of varieties of bread nature's kind makes. This makes him happy until, for the first time in over a decade, he looks up beyond the horizon and where the sky touches green oaks beyond. There she is, stunning Phoebe, and he realizes he had forgotten about his old friend the moon over the years. She glows white, and he imagines he can make out the features he remembers reading so often about as a child. He starts walking toward her. He walks for hours until it's dark, then stumbles through heavy brush, certain he is moments away from death. He stops and huddles close to a big tree and sleeps until morning breaks in a soft blue light. He stands, finds a sapling to bless, and remembers this clearing from more than three decades back and within ten paces finds himself looking down into the cave opening that nearly killed him twenty years before, but is now a mere scramble for the fifty-year-old former Marine. Hours later he returns to his office, and after only a moment of further deliberation, presses the little red button on the intercom. Sheila? Yes, Mr. Kind, the woman hired to make sure he got messages and made meetings answers back. I am taking nature's kind public. And whether she minded going from small family-owned company to giant monolith corporate might, she does not say, only helps him find a lawyer and, through them, a bank willing to finance the management of the business and make it grow. And growing means having investors who are only happy when the plant is running at peak capacity. So that's where he becomes rich beyond measure, turning nature's kind into the biggest bread-making operation ever seen, freeing himself for new distractions. Phoebe sits full reflecting off the flight deck vitrine as Gunter sinks down to his lab. No, he corrects himself. It's still Goddard's lab in spirit and deed, though almost nothing from that engineer remains. The number one change is the elevator. It's no longer the death trap Goddard installed, but a classy McDonough job done in gleaming steel with a capacity of five tons and a drop speed of 300 feet per minute. He drops 300 feet to the lab on the silently moving elevator, loaded with the last of the provisions he'll need to leave Earth. Once in space, he has no plans on coming back, one reason being he is 127 years old. Marine and tough as nails or not, he can see the writing on the wall, and has ever since he saw war. The end is nigh, and he is okay with that. But he feels good today, and expects to be alive tomorrow also, and so gets busy busting down the pallet so he can leave. To help get work done, he wears compression gear under a pressurized intravehicle activity suit designed with an exoskeleton to help his body undergo the rigid stresses of making space travel. The exoskeleton also has the added benefit of making him feel like Superman. He loves being as strong as four men and having the option to travel at 40 miles an hour on foot if he wants to push the technology.
which he hardly ever does. He moves the boxes one at a time from elevator to a cart, feeling the movements but not the effort, then pulls the cart to the shuttle's cargo hold, marveling that he built this thing himself. The ship is sleek with thermal protection tiling classically colored white and black. Her name, D the Second, is painted in black lettering underneath the flight deck canopy. The name makes him happy, because it marks a conclusion for the little rocket that he found and melted down to create a steel alloy used to box components for the guidance system. D for Germany, where he came from, and the second because so much of what he has done is based on what came before. Every element comes from research he helped fund for NASA. Billions of dollars spent coming up with things like the aluminum silicate glass that will protect him from the ravages of space. Looking through it, the universe will look vaguely purple. Better than Goddard's own foolhearted attempt. For Windows, he simply used glass, and for that reason alone, it was a good thing he never tried to launch his vessel. His also sat upright. Gunter Kynes does not. He placed the rocket on tracks in an underground runway sculpted by many contractors over the course of two decades. Behind the sled is a huge chunk of steel that curbs the unruh engine blast down and away from the components that have helped him construct his vessel over the last 80 years. The components will be left. When they are discovered, most likely, they will be considered museum pieces. If they are discovered. His lab is much more secure than Dr. Goddard's, and he is as much a ghost as he is a living person. NASA never gets a check from him, but from nature's kind. He is okay with this because he gets to see all the information on the tech it produces, and also at least the checks get printed with his smiling visage as their watermark. Space travel was always the future for him. And that's what he bought. Not accolades, not attaboys, but the chance to live and die by his dream. The moon is west, and that's where he is going. Finishing with the last of the boxes... He closes the hatch with the press of a button on his augmented reality heads-up display, and it closes with the hiss of hydraulics and mush of rubber seal. And that's it. He could be done with Earth now. Everything is done, including all the excuses. He looks around his pristine underground lab and hangar bay. So much effort to make and build, collect all the knowledge for, and now the only thing Earth has left for him to mark time till his death. Maybe he can be satisfied he made it to this point. Turn around, lock up the lab and his rocket. Find an easy chair to ride out the remaining portion of his time. Watch streams or read books on his smart glass. No. To finish his work, he has to at least travel to the moon. He feels depressed. Forced against the wall. Execution all that remains. It all began when he found the cave again. Without that moment... He might have missed the Apollo moon landing altogether. He knew of it. People he cared about talked about it. But for him, while it was happening, it reminded him too much of his old fantasies. So when the crew of Apollo 1 vaporized, strapped in their seats two years before, he laughs off their whole endeavor as folly. But in 69 they did it. And Gunter is confident, 74 years later, he can do the same. It was actually four years after the moon landing he starts paying attention. Almost fifty and breathing hard, he emerges from the cave to enter the cold, dusty engineering lab, empty since before the Second World War. The lab, illuminated by light streaming in through the slats in the barn above, was cloudy with dust and cobwebs. He finds a fuse box, flips on the main, and suddenly the white-tiled room is washed in light. 
A few of the old bulbs explode as electricity courses through their long dormant innards, sending sparks flying like fireworks around the rusting hulk of Goddard's rocket. Soon enough, Gunter finds he is not the first to disturb the hallowed ground. Newspaper clippings are tacked to a rotting corkboard. Articles on the science of flight along with crude drawings of space and space travel. A dirty mattress littered with stacks of old sci-fi books sits in a corner. A journal also. Flipping through it, he finds the last date was an admittance by the nameless boy that he did not want to be a soldier, and hopes he doesn't have to go to Vietnam. If he doesn't come back, the scratchy penmanship offers whomever shall find this hoard can keep it. Gunter decides to honor the boy's wishes. He glances over the collected works, noting some of the authors from his youth, including a few works by Goddard he himself owned long ago. And then, like a hot knife to the chest, it dawns on him what he gave up for his own war. This boy, the one he killed, so many dreams gone. Dreams were what was wrong with life. The Romans called dreams errors because they weren't real and never could be. Life was a cold, hard reality. War, murder, cutthroat business dealings so your father wouldn't be disappointed. Or maybe one was supposed to fix errors so dreams can live. And maybe errors to the Romans were hints at happiness. Fix them and life becomes better. He takes the journal and studies the boy's errors. There were many, and he did not come back, so Gunter imagines he died fighting in the Delta, like so many he knew in his own war, like so many boys throughout history. And now, eighty-plus years later, he is here, about to leave his own journal for the next person to find. He knows who that is because he invited him, a journalist from New York. In a few days, he will get an email that will offer him crumb number one on a journey that may lead him here. Hopefully. One day. There is little Gunther can do if stupidity prevents the little game from completing. So the failsafe is a complete info dump straight onto MIT's public workspace in two decades. The kind files, he calls them. Proud of himself. He climbs the stairs set against the shuttle hatch and, once aboard, presses the button that sets the lab into launch mode. Seeing the lab clear, he feels space-bound, especially when the ship locks down and pressurizes the cabin. He walks through his living space, set up like the galley of a sailboat, a digital and analog workstation, sleep sack and hydroponics bay. It's stoic in its comforts, but Gunter is certain life's not going to continue to be so kind to him, so why bother with luxuries? The end must come for us all, so he put more thought in function than long-term enjoyment of the vessel. How long he has, there is no telling. Thirty years ago, he did his first stem cell treatment and almost every single symptom of aging left him. He felt sixty again. His second and third treatments were to regrow every tooth in his mouth. He had stem cells injected into all his organs. He has not eaten an ounce of meat since 2023, the year he decided he would die in space. His personal doctor has said he is as healthy as any 18-year-old trapped in a 127-year-old body could hope to be. He thinks back to the hell of whatever Pacific island he spent his 18th birthday on. Sure, he feels better today as he straps himself down into the captain's chair. In fact, he has never felt better. He flips through the HUD until he verifies everything is green, toggles a few more physical switches, and holds a finger over the button that will send the sled launcher into motion and begin its maiden and only voyage into space. Behind him, he feels the unruh engine. It doesn't rumble or shake. It just waits for him to move the stick and bring the plane to life. 
Theoretically, it's the power of a collapsing black hole, but put simply, it crunches atoms to make thrust. It's the only one like it on the planet. The woman who invented it, just 17 years old, used the work of several lifetimes of engineers to compile her schematic. He had parts built all over the world and shipped to be assembled by his own ever-aging hands. It was the last crucial step in a plan spanning 70 years. Every stage of its development based on the stages of NASA's own success and failure. In 1983, after the Challenger explosion, he decided fuel capable of exploding would never work, too sensitive to change. Engines could not run without it, so he was stuck until he figured out new tech. In 2002, insulation became his new fetish. In 2023, it was the ever-increasing amount of space debris clogging the upper atmosphere that drew his attention and the attention of the whole world. It put his hubris fully in check. That tragedy killed two of the world's best-known space tourists and humanity's collective desire to explore the stars. Gunter flew himself down for the launch in a Cessna. He remembers the buzz of insects, or baby rattlesnakes, or maybe the chortling conversation of billions of humans around the globe filling the air around the Floridian launch venue. The dead might even be here, too. The whole of human history ought to be watching what started as a fashion billionaire paying most of his fortune to take 30 people around the moon with him on another billionaire's rocket. He made a game of filling every seat, with even former presidents and crown princes vying for the opportunity to leave the planet for a solid 30 days of travel around the moon. On launch day, the huge Colossus rocket steamed upright in its scaffolding across the water, filled with the men and women he handpicked. Artists and thinkers mostly, people filled with colorful metaphors, and lots of hot air, but nothing handier. Gunter saw that as wasteful. Space was for science, not tourism. To commemorate the moment, some broadcast stations looking for something to fill the time as the viewers at home suffered through the thousands of critical last-minute things flight engineers attempted to solve during their safety window, show the announcement from half a decade before. And that'll be five billion dollars. The gathered crowd, mostly employees of the billionaire space magnate, clap and laugh politely at the joke. Most assume it was a skit prearranged prior to the stream. Then the Japanese billionaire hands over a check to the billionaire tech guy. No, 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 I said five billion dollars. Oh, and they both chortle as the first man adds a zero to the amount on the check. Thanks. As we know, this is the most money ever spent on a single piece of paper in the history of mankind, he said, pocketing the check and handing his friend an invoice for 30 seats to space. Gunter is pulled from his own memory of that day by a bitter voice saying, five billion dollars to send a worthless colony of humans around the moon and back. What a waste. You'd think he'd hung the moon himself just for the occasion. And everyone around that reporter looks up into the cornflower blue sky where the moon punctuates the steaming rocket sitting on its pad many miles east. The rocket sitting across the Florida Bay is a normal thing. Five, maybe six launches a week happen now. This one is less than three minutes from doing what it was designed to do. Puncture the earth sky and make history. Then a section of the immense crowd cheers. Here he comes, says another of the reporters standing in a little gaggle as a man wearing the logo of his multi-billion dollar company on his fat softening chest climbs the stairs to dais. He waves as he climbs, making his way to the center giggling with glee. What do you think he will say? A small voice asks. The reporter seems to think it's his job to provide information, 
so answers what everyone is thinking. Going to announce his bankruptcy, isn't he? If he is smart, he'll admit to everything, board that rocket, and never be seen by the human race again. Smart for him or good for us? (laughs) As if. His words are interrupted as a loud squelch of electronic interference rends the subtropical air painful. The billionaire smiles a hangdog smile and then runs his hand over the microphones a second time. The ear-piercing shriek makes the crowd flinch as one again. And the man's smile grows and everyone knows he is going to do it a third time, which he does so as not to disappoint expectations. Still giggling, he points to a countdown clock just reaching under a minute. What does the billionaire lunatic say just before he launches a rocket to the moon? He asks into the bank of microphones, obviously standing all over the punchline of a joke he can't wait to release. He stands before the microphones, barely containing guffaws, and watches for a good twenty seconds for someone to offer a guess. The hundred gathered to witness history squirm uncomfortable, until a brave soul ventures, What? And the billionaire collapses into gales of laughter. He laughs until the countdown reaches fifteen seconds, promptly stands up, straightens his tie, and looks earnestly into one of the cameras and says, Bon voyage, Earth! Gunter hopes at least the man got to see his joke pay off before the end. The crowd ate it up. He sucks in air like all the rest, leaving little to breathe for what must have been a ten-mile radius. When the hologram flickers and dies, the stage is empty, save for one final loud squelch of electronic feedback. And a last giggle. Gunter finds himself covering his ears and too short of air to breathe, afraid for a moment he was having a heart attack as he stands there gawking. Then the rocket launches suddenly, as if it hadn't been on a timer, pulling focus and every face toward it. It goes up and up and all goes well, until it slams into space debris and explodes in low Earth orbit, perfectly visible to the people of Angola, and played over and over and over again on the internet and news channels for weeks. Two billionaires dead, plus thirty names no one ever really cared about as the house of cards that was space exploration came tumbling down. Gunter thinks of that as he presses his own launch button. If his shuttle explodes and he dies, he will be the only one traumatized because he is the only one that knows about this event. But he doesn't die. Instead, the acceleration behind him is nice and easy as he races down his limestone-carved runway on top of the launch vehicle, the halogen lights flickering faster and faster as he races underneath them. When he explodes out of the tunnel, pushed by the high-powered sled, He is going fifty times the speed of sound, thankful again for the exoskeleton in his suit and the care in which he constructed everything. Then catastrophe occurs. An alarm sounds. His system detects a collision, and the hideous noise is the detection alarm. Finding it difficult to get the words out to tell the system to mute the fuss, he flips through the data on his HUD until he finds the issue. A blimp of space debris. Honing in his optics, He can just barely make out the Chinese satellite nobody has the funding to take care of. As he approaches what would surely be a collision if he hadn't planned for this occurrence, he activates the procedure and simply navigates around it as if it were some small thing obstructing the road. Moments later, he is beyond low-Earth orbit and deep within the Van Allen radiation belt. And that's it. He did it. Made it to space. With this design, he can go back and forth if he wants, or just finish out what little time he has, weightless. The D the second settles onto its pre-planned trajectory, and Phoebe fills the viewport, and the ship 
with her white light. You look beautiful, Freed, he says out loud, and completely uncaring if it makes him insane. Because who cares anymore if he is? He checks his heading and floats away from the control panel, hands behind his head. It'll be three hours until the moon. If he is still alive when he gets there, he will land and be the thirteenth human to step foot on its surface. And then? Become a skeleton somewhere beyond the Kuiper Belt. He thinks of his future, sees the things he will explore as if firsthand, and yawns, surprised. Turns out space exploration is exhausting. He rubs his eyes. Yes, he just woke up, but that does not excuse the obvious bubble of artificial material jutting up from the surface of the moon. The D the second hovers serenely over the place he told it to go, Mons Rümker. He is a little disappointed he slept through the arrival, but to now be bathed fully in the moon goddess's white glow is breathtaking. Then a bleep. He looks down and on his HUD, he sees an invitation by an at-EM to join a video chat. Before he can stop his curious finger from pressing the OK option, it does, and he is looking into familiar eyes filled with a mischievous impish twinkle, now just twenty years older. If you think you can get your data back to Earth before we destroy... The thought-dead billionaire pauses and studies Gunter intently. How fucking old are you, and why do you look like the bread guy? I am 127 years old, and I guess in some circles I'd be considered the bread guy. Can you still do it? What? Make bread? Yes, he says, looking starved. And Gunter thinks. His entire life has been spent trying to leave Earth. Now off the planet of his birth he has a choice, and decides, Yes, of course. And the man who colonized the moon nods, because it is enough. More will come eventually, Gunter warns. Maybe not tomorrow, but at the very least when MIT gets its dump. Let them, at EM says. We made the moon for all humans. All they have to do is follow my rules. And the leader of the lunatics giggles, and that makes Gunter giggle. And they giggle together as he lowers his shuttle to a landing pad tucked into the shadows of one of the tallest mountains in the solar system. Brian Aiello hosts weekly podcasts on creativity and speculative fiction and is a writer of fantasy, sci-fi, and the macabre. Raised on Florida's Gulf Coast, Brian served in the Army, graduated from the University of South Florida, and now calls Brooklyn home. For more of his fiction and links to his podcasts, visit www.brianiello.com and follow him on Twitter at Briello. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.